Hello and welcome to Steph TV. I'm your host, Nick Huzar, also the co-founder of OfferUp. And I've spent a considerable amount of time trying to understand how my own life impacts the planet. And I found it really complicated. So I just started to create this podcast and interview really interesting thought leaders to help enlighten us. And with me today, I've got Jeremy Walters, who's the uh, sustainability ambassador for Republic Services. And Republic Services is a monster. I guess a big company. And so uh, I think Jeremy is going to have a really good view on, on how to talk about waste management in the U.S. So, uh, Jeremy, thanks for being here. We'd love to maybe start with a quick intro on, you know, how did you get into this this business? Oh, well, it uh, it depends on how far you want to go back. But uh, growing up, I've always had an inherent love for the environment. Um, animals in particular, if you can't tell about the uh, saltwater aquarium behind me, but, you know, just being out in nature and, and seeing things alive and thriving and that, you know, waste doesn't play a role in sitting in the environment. And so I actually went to school for environmental studies and then um, Republic back in 2015 opened up one of the largest residential recycling centers in North America, right here in Las Vegas. And uh, I, I remember going to the grand opening and I said, wow, this is impressive. This is something that is going to, to move the needle and really be impactful for sustainability, not just, uh, you know, in southern Nevada, but neighboring regions. And then when we look at Republic at, you know, the, the national scale, you know, the things that the company is doing, it's just so impressive. I, I knew I had to be a part of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's kind of it sounds like you're I remember when I was starting offer up, everyone was starting these e-commerce sites. I was like, wait, that's over here. I'm like, I'm more interested in the waste side of things. So I think you got to have to have that in the DNA where, like, I kept asking, like, where does all the Amazon stuff go? Like, where's yeah. everything going? That's, that's, that was the, some of the first questions I started to ask myself, like, man, we're producing a lot. Where is it all going? And, uh, and, 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 and you're right in thinking that. And it's one of those things that until you, you know, until you work in the industry or you become curious enough to, to learn about it, it's a little out of sight, out of mind, right? You know, I, I wheel my carts out every Thursday. I got a trash cart. I got a recycling cart. It gets picked up without fail and it goes somewhere and something happens to it. But, you know, when you think about how many times a day that's happening all over the country and how much waste people produce, you know, uh, it, to some, it may give you a little bit of an existential crisis when you think about it. But, um, you know, that's where we come in, right? And we're, we're here to manage these materials in the most environmentally responsible way that we can. Yeah, one of the one of the stats I, I've referred to a number of times on this podcast, which is interesting, is in the U.S., the average uh, person will live to be, I think, is about 74 years old and will produce about 128,000 pounds of trash in a lifetime. So if you just do that math times the number of people in the U.S., that's 42 trillion pounds of trash. And you're like, what the heck? So if you think about it, even the last 100 years, there's so many amazing things that have occurred in humanity over the last hundred years um, that we can we've all benefited from, and I don't think a lot of us ever thought about it at the time. The the, the downsides or the kind of the byproduct of of some of this. I mean, hundred years ago, we we're still trading kind of you know pelts for gunpowder, right? Like not everyone had a car yet, and so I think it's really kind of a um, kind of a, a, a really rapid evolution that humanity's had to deal with, and I, now I think we're also at a stage where you know, what got us here is not going to get us there. And it's great to see companies start to, you know, think of all these processes and things that have, that have impacted humanity, but also saying, huh, uh, do we have to always do it the same way? 
Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you you talk about history and, and how things have developed, you know, consumer behavior has just, you know, evolved so significantly. When we think about, you know, traditional waste systems, um, you know, recycling has long been a part of human nature, human culture. It's just in a different way, right? You know, when something broke, you actually kept it and you fixed yeah, it or you maybe, it. yeah, you worked on it, right? Or you used other parts to make something else. And so the idea of recycling and reuse is it's nothing new, but in the way that we're used to it these days, it's that really it's to support our consumer behavior, right? We consume something and then we need to discard of it. And hopefully there's a market for it that it can then be turned into something usable again. What are some of the biggest challenges in recycling that, that you see? Yeah, so the recycling rate over the last handful of decades has has grown significantly, but it's still hovering in the low 30%. I think it's yeah. it's somewhere around 32%. Um so a lot of work to be done there. And it isn't necessarily because things can't be recycled. It's just simply that, you know, us as consumers, we potentially aren't putting these things in the recycling bin to begin with. Or a subset of that is that, you know, we're eager to recycle and we throw the wrong thing in the bin. You know, we become a wish cycler, right? You throw something in yeah. the bin, unsure if it can be recycled or not. And then you actually do more harm than good, whether it be to the, the process itself or, you know, contaminating, contaminating other good recyclables along the way. So, you know, uh, definitely room for improvement. Recycling infrastructure across the United States, the recycling accessibility um, just about every single major metropolitan area has some level of either curbside or single stream, uh, all in one recycling, whatever you want to call it. Um, rural areas, you know, you can see that there's some disparity there in terms of access, but there's a lot of access to recycling. And so that's where, again, us as consumers, we really have a role to play that, you know, when we drink a water bottle or, you know, a soda bottle, we Got to take it home and recycle it if there's not something out in the community. Because once something goes into the trash stream, largely it's not being recovered, right? It's it's pretty uh, it's pretty impossible to sort through the trash to try to pull out good recoverable materials. Mm. You can you can capture some things, right? You know, th some other things are more resilient than others, and they're going to be beverage containers largely, right? You know, a glass bottle, a plastic bottle, but they're very soiled and they're very difficult to market, and that's why it's so important that. You know, when you have materials that are good, recyclable materials, they go in the recycling bin. You can't confuse the fact that, you know, uh, it looks like the same trucks coming by the house. You know, they're especially with Republic, you know, they're all big blue trucks. Um, yeah. You know, they look like one the came by truck. yesterday. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. But it's a it's a different truck that's actually picking up the material and taking it to an entirely different facility for a completely separate process. So it's it's imperative that we put those things in the right bin. And do you have, like my sister lives in Orange County and maybe she's not doing it, but I, she's like, Oh, we just throw it in one bin. They figure it out. I said, I don't think so. Yeah. I have family in Orange County as well. Uh, particularly <laughs> in, uh, Laguna Niguel. And, yes. And right here. That's uh, the same area. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, I know who the service provider is down there and, uh, you know, that's, that's largely what's going to be happening is that if you're throwing, Every single thing that you are throwing away into one bin, you are going to lose a good portion of, of yeah. recoverable materials, right? Fiber is what we call paper and cardboard largely. And uh, if that gets soiled with food and liquid, it's, it's trash now. So, you know, those mixed waste systems, 
they're not the most efficient because you do lose good, valuable materials in the process. Yeah. Can you maybe stepping back at a macro level, just explain to people back, you said this a little bit earlier, you know, when I, I think most of us, we throw things in the trash and we're like, Oh, we're back on to our daily life. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll probably overlay a, a picture I took for Earth Day. I laid in a pile of my family's trash for a year. So I did a, I did a week's worth and we laid in a football field and then we shot this football field with a drone, used Photoshop to cut and paste by 52. So I was like, I wonder what that would look like. And it looked like you would imagine. It looked way messed up. You're like, there's no way I'm producing this much. And you, you realize you do. And like, I think as a family, we're pretty environmentally conscious. Um, but I wouldn't say we're super extremist at all. Right. You know, and, and part of it, it was, I think we are far more now we're getting more and more that way because we're learning through just doing the show of like, Oh, where does it make sense? And where does it, where does it not? But again, it was kind of eye opening for me going through that process. So, yeah. So, you know, the, again, trash goes through an entirely different process, recycling to another. And, you know, depending on locale, the, the intermediary process, if you will, can look slightly different. But largely, it's the same, right? Recycling is going to what uh, what we refer to as a MRF. It's MRF. It's Material Recovery Facility Recycling Center, right? So we take all the mixed commodities there. It's run through a, a fairly automated system. Most systems these days are pretty automated that they have machines doing an initial separation. We're separating them into individual commodity streams, right? It's just cardboard. It's just paper. It's just uh, glass, aluminum, tin, the different grades of plastic, People are are there as well, and they're following up with quality control. And then once materials are separated, we bail them, and then we ship them off to be turned into new materials. Trash is is different in a way that um, you know it's still collected at the curb. Sometimes it goes to a transfer station, transferred onto a larger truck, depending on the proximity of the landfill to uh, to the service area, and then ultimately it's it's dropped in the landfill. But landfills themselves. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around what they are and what they do. And, you know, they've changed significantly in the last uh, handful of decades as well. Uh, you can look up something called Subtitle D and Subtitle D really changed the rules and regulations of, of how a landfill is set up. And there's a lot of environmental protections that go into the engineering of a landfill, liner systems, uh, gas wells, um, leachate collection systems. And so essentially when the trash is dropped there, you know, it's, uh, it's compacted. Compaction is really how we extend the life of a landfill and really maximize the space that we're working with. And then ultimately uh, it's, it's, it's covered with what we call final cover and it's going to be dirt. Um, again, depending on the locale, you know, one thing that Republic Services has really been doubling down on is uh, realizing that in a landfill, you know, you've got essentially two byproducts of waste. One is going to be a liquid waste. It's called leachate. It's kind of like a gray water. But they uh, said lychee you know. before, and that's what my, my wife drinks that. And I, <laughs> that tastes like liquid waste to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the leachate would probably be uh, significantly worse tasting. But yeah, yeah le lychee, I'm, I'm with you. It doesn't taste very good either. Um, <laughs> but we pull that out of the hill and, um, you know, we manage it in different ways. Some some places around the country, when we have closed sites, we do what's called phytoremediation. So uh, we actually use this leachate to water specifically selected uh, poplar trees or vetiver grasses. And they're using the, um, you know, the constituents of leachate, you know, heavy metals and things like that as micro and macronutrients to fuel their growth. So they're also sequestering carbon through their mm -hmm. growth, right? Naturally through photosynthesis, but 
you know, us having to reduce the amount of tanker trips to take uh, leachate out to a water treatment facility or to another area to treat it. Um, but one of the really cool things that I was mentioning that we're doubling down on is uh, is renewable energy, right? So the other byproduct of, of landfills is primarily methane gas. And so this is a naturally occurring byproduct in a landfill. And we realized that this can be turned into either power, right, through landfill gas to energy, mm-hmm. or through some of our uh, most recent joint venture uh, initiatives uh, with Arkea Energy, we're going to be taking uh, landfill gas and making it into RNG. And that can be used in fleets. So it's going to be a low carbon fuel source for fleet vehicles. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do think the future, I'm optimistic. You know, we talked about if you talk about globalization, there's a lot of great things that came out of that. But also what you think about is like all this stuff that's just accumulating locally. And so it seems like, how do you tap into that more? To us as consumers, the value is now gone. It's in the trash. But that doesn't yeah. mean there's still not value in there to be had. You know, potential economic upsides to kind of leveraging some of this. And I think that's one perfect example. And at the same time, you're solving a big, I think one of our biggest challenges in our lifetime is going to be how do we harness energy more? Um, you know, uh, you know, electricity demand and demands on our grid, especially in the next 30 years is going to be significant. The EV adoption is awesome. Like we continue to exceed kind of some of the expectations of what that's going to be, but where are we in 10 years? You know, there's like, like we'll talk about EV charging stations. There's like 160,000 of them in the U S I think by 2030, we need to have 2 million of them to keep up the demand. How are we going to do things like that? So I think it's really interesting how you're leveraging that and the scale. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, Republic Services has what seventeen thousand trucks today or something. Yeah, uh, today about seventeen thousand, and we do also operate some other um, vehicles on the road running on RNG. I think about twenty-one percent of those seventeen thousand are running on RNG. So we, you know, we've got investments there. Um, uh, in the next five years, though, we we anticipate that half of our new truck, uh, truck purchases are going to be uh, electric, though. Um, those are not. I mean, one, I'm sure those trucks are not cheap already, and now they're going to have these huge batteries in them. I mean, are you thinking about potentially leveraging? I mean, just charging them on site. Like, how does that going to work? Because you could, if you're producing your own energy. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some places that that could make sense, but we're working with public utilities in our hauling yards because generally speaking, where where the trucks birth from is different than where they go to dispose of something. Sometimes they're simultaneous, right? Um, You know, landfill could have a hauling yard, but our hauling yards where we're putting EVs, we really are investing in putting the infrastructure there as well. And we have seen with some other uh, players in the space that if they're looking at electrification efforts, they don't actually have the infrastructure to to manage it. And so that's something that we're really focused on is that when we're looking to roll out these EVs, that we have infrastructure at our facilities that, you know, when the truck is done servicing the route for the day, it goes and gets hung up on the charger and it's ready to go the next day. Yeah, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. When you think about, uh, there's a few other things that you were sharing about the future. Uh, let's say the next five years or so, or even beyond, like what are things that get you super excited? Uh, and, you know, you mentioned a few different innovations I thought were interesting and just how do you re- repurpose some of these products so they can be utilized locally versus today people are sourcing from across the world to bring these things here. And I mean, you got, you're just trying to figure out like, how can you get these things out into the, the local kind of ecosystem, right? 
Yeah. And, you know, something that you had mentioned earlier is kind of about the economics uh, involved with sustainability. And and for us, we, you know, we, we view that sustainability isn't just our responsibility, but it's also an opportunity, right? And that economic sustainability and environmental sustainability, they're, they're inextricably linked, right? We, we have true opportunity there. And one of those things, the one that gets me really excited is, is Polymer Center. So in today's world, um, largely, you know, when you go and you recycle a water bottle, for example, it's not always recycled into a water bottle again. Most of the time, it's going to be downcycled into synthetic fibers for clothes or carpeting, uh, something other than itself, right? With Polymer Center, we're really trying to advance circularity. We want to make a bottle become a bottle again. And in Las Vegas later this year, we're going to be opening up the first of a, of a handful of Polymer Centers, where once we separate the materials at the recycling center, we take those bales to Polymer, and then we break them up. We can grind them into flake. We can separate the cap and the ring from the bottle. It can go through a wash process and a drying process, and then ultimately back out on market. Um, there's, there's strong demand for these materials and especially, you know, right now, uh, you can look up something called extended producer responsibility and, uh, more and more, uh, large CPG companies are looking to bring recycled content back in their packaging. And there's actually legislation that may demand that from them in the near future. So currently there's not infrastructure that can help meet that demand. But that's exactly what Polymer Center is going to be doing. And so when we open up uh, this national network of these Polymer Centers, we're, we're going to be directly uh, advancing that bottle-to-bottle circularity. It's it's something that's it's pretty impressive. I actually just was over there yesterday. Uh, you know, it's still in the construction phase, but all the equipment is inside the building. And uh, I just am so impressed with the engineers that come up with the pieces of equipment that that work in the process, how they fit it into a building. It's, it's truly going to be, in my opinion, something very revolutionary for, uh, for the environmental services industry. And, and, and key, I mean, I harp a lot on plastics. Um, there's a lot of good that's come out of plastics, but like plastic water bottles, I, I go postal. Like, you know, it's just like, you know, we produce 500 billion of these a year on the globe. And it is, you know, and you know, when I was a kid, we didn't drink water. And I think about it, like we drink soda, like and juice, you know, reuse that locally, like such a massive one, I think it's a massive economic opportunity for sure. But then two also should have a huge impact, uh, you know, on the en- environment. It, it, it will. And, you know, the, the key thing, though, to remember is that, again, us as consumers, we do have a responsibility that when we consume these materials, we got to make sure that they end up in the bin. And without that, you know, it, that's where I think plastics can can start to get a bad rap. Um, you're right. There's a lot of things in our daily lives that are made possible by plastic, but you know we we tend to focus, I think, on the the wrong material sometimes. Uh, you know, there's some statistics out there that kind of take you down the rabbit hole, if you will, right? Saying you know only five percent of plastics gets recycled, and there's a layer of truth to that. But when you kind of start peeling back the layers of that onion. You start to realize that global plastics production isn't just limited to a water bottle. It's yeah. you know, it's it's your microphone. It's my oh, headphones. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, it's everywhere yeah. right? And so when we look at global plastics production and it's contributing to a recycling rate, not everything that's created is is intended to be recycled. Yeah. So that's where when we start getting down to a little bit more of a micro level, if you will, and we're looking at consumer materials, 
bottles, jugs, tubs that have the ability to be recycled, yes, we want to make sure that we're reducing our impact. We're using less of those things when and where possible. But when we do use them, when we do consume from them, make sure that they go in the recycling bin because they are valuable in this this big chain of a process and they will continue to be valuable and become more valuable as uh, producers are looking to add more content, uh, recycled content to their packaging. What do you think, uh, you know, to that point around consumers, like for anybody watching this, like what would you say to them has the biggest impact in, in your business? Like what are things consumers should be doing um, that really, let's say I mess up and I put the wrong thing in the wrong bit um, or batteries. I've heard a lot of horror stories about batteries and like, you know, fires are causing millions of dollars in damage. And like, what are things that you wish every consumer would know about? And if they just made those changes, it would sure make an impact. So I'll start with the easy one before I, before I jump into this one, plastic bags, flexible plastics, probably one of the single biggest issues that we see day to day at our recycling centers. Uh, all they do is wrap and tangle around the sorting equipment. Think about a vacuum cleaner, right? You know, if you're vacuuming your house, I, I've got a little bit longer hair as do you. And you know, my wife does right over time, the rollers of a vacuum, if you don't clean them out, they get tangled with hair and that vacuum cleaner becomes inefficient. Well, that same principle applies. We're utilizing disc screens that are rotating. And when you throw in a, a grocery bag or that bubble wrap from your Amazon packaging or the satchel, they wrap and tangle, right? So when we can try to cut things out of our daily lives, that is so much more impactful. Uh, flexible plastics don't belong in your recycling bin. You shouldn't be bagging your recyclables. Um, so, so cut that out. That's that's an easy one. I always do that. I have the little, I have the trash bag that all of the recycle goes in, but then I empty the trash in and I take that bag and I end up take, putting the bag in the trash. Yeah, and that's that's where it belongs. But, you know, like when you go to the grocery store, Get in the habit of bringing your own bags. I know that it is sometimes a tedious job. You, you know, you go into the store and you forget them. I, uh, I made a, a, a shift in our lives many years ago because we weren't perfect, right? And I still am not perfect. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll get a grocery bag. But, uh, you know, we, we made it a habit that it's like if we forgot yeah, our grocery bag, carry. You got to carry it all out. After, <laughs> after, you, after you do it four or five times, you're like, I'm going to remember the bag next time. You know, I, har I harp on two things to this point. You're, I mean, you're hitting the bullseye for me. One is I talk about plastic water bottles in this all the time. And the other one is the grocery bag. So if you look at 25% of the waste in our oceans, it's those two things. It's plastic water bottles and it's plastic bags. So for me, like you said, the change in habit didn't happen right away. We now treat our plastic water bottles like getting dressed. And it's, it's, it's take, probably taken years. I have little kids. So when we leave the house, it's like, oh, you're getting your shoes on. Well, where's your water bottle? And we've got so hardcore about it now. Like, we'll go out and eat Thai food. My kids are like, well, sometimes they'll give you water. But it depends on where we're going. They're, they're like, dad, I need water. I'm like, well, sorry, you didn't bring your water bottle. And so I'm not going to go get you, you know, a, a water bottle. Uh, and then the plastic bags... The change in behavior I had to do because I realized we have a bunch of those, or sorry, the, the reusable bags, but they were always in my trunk. So I'd always go in there and I did exactly what you say, standing there and like, do you want a bag? I'm like, nope, I'm just going to carry this. The change though is I started putting it in the pocket of my driver's side door. So when I got out, I always know it's there and I just grab it now. So that seemed, that was one little change in behavior that seemed, seemed to help. Yeah. And behavioral changes are you know, what really drive our recycling habits. And, you know, once it becomes routine, 
these things, they don't become difficult to do. And it's, it's the bag thing, right? It's just remembering to put it in a more convenient spot. So you grab it next time you go in the store. But yeah, I mean, that makes a significant impact. I think I read a statistic a handful of years ago that it said uh, one reusable bag will save about 22,000 single use plastic bags in its lifetime. And again, it's huge. Kind of what, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, right? When you think about, okay, that's twenty two thousand for me, but it's twenty two thousand for you. Yeah. It's twenty two thousand for everyone I math. know, right? Do the math. Uh, what so, was the other thing? So you, you talked about bags, batteries, electronics. Uh, you know, again, consumer behavior, right? I feel like every couple months there's a brand new one of these out on the market. Um, people. I think they look at a cell phone, a laptop, uh, you know, electronic device, and they say, okay, it's got a glass screen, it's got metal components, there's plastic components, and potentially by themselves, they're recyclable. But again, confusing the idea, either with reuse, uh, that reuse con- constitutes recycling, or that, you know, these things can be recycled, they throw it in the bin, not understanding that a lithium battery is one of the scariest things that our industry has been facing over the last handful of years. And it's only becoming more prevalent, you yeah. know, when, uh, when, when one of these gets cracked or punctured or, or bent, they potentially explode. And if you think about what's at a recycling facility, paper and cardboard and plastic, you know, mm-hmm. which is petroleum based, these fires can become exponential and, uh, you know, they pose serious risks to the employees that work there, neighboring communities. But, um, you know, we, we have been implementing more and more fire suppression systems. Uh, fire Rover is one in particular where we actually have infrared imaging of the, the pile of recyclables before it's processed. We can see a hotspot and potentially extinguish it before it becomes problematic. But some of the older facilities that don't have them or have them yet, uh, you know, it, it's still a risk every day. But that risk isn't just limited to the recycling center. It can also be at your curb, right? You know, the, the yeah. truck that's picking up these materials, they've got compactors in the back. And if they're compacting that material uh you know i've seen it i've seen it a handful of times in my lifetime where a truck has to dump the material out on the roadway otherwise the whole truck burns down because there's uh you know potentially a lithium battery or some other flammable material in there um you know it's it's important to understand that e-waste specifically things that are rechargeable with a lithium battery um they don't go in your regular trash bin they don't go in your regular recycling bin yeah they have to go to an electronics recycler whether you take it to a best buy or you utilize a mailback program of some sort they cannot go in your curbside bins yeah i I think here there are certain days or i know i think i can take my batteries which i just put in a big bag and if I leave it on the uh, one of the trash, they'll take they'll they'll hand take it out separately. But I know I I know that was a newer thing that we started doing. Yeah, and we have we do have some communities around the United States that will have those uh, little battery collection programs. But um, you know the alkaline batteries themselves are less problematic than something like a lithium battery. The lithium battery just just think for, simply for a consumer or anybody watching, right? Anything that's rechargeable consider that that it's got that hazard right it's got that fire potential and you got to take it to a designated electronics recycler a lot of the cell phone carriers as well you know you can donate your old electronics back to them um you know if they're still usable uh you know i know especially with like iphones and androids they're still valuable even if they're yeah. a generation or two old so you can sell them right you can sell them on offer up you could sell yep. them through shameless uh, plug through some yeah, shameless plug yeah. right you, you could you could sell them through something like that 
but as they become older, if they still, if they're still usable, consider donating them. Um, I can't remember the carrier, but the program is called cell phones for soldiers. And, you know, you can donate them there and then they can send them overseas to soldiers and, you know, they can put minutes on them. So there's a lot of great opportunities to keep things out of the waste stream. And that's really what we should be doing is, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, thinking about how we can keep things out of the trash or even out of the recycling stream. Donation, reuse, those are all first and foremost before it comes to the disposal side of things. Mm -hmm. So plastic bags, lithium batteries, are those the biggest ones? Those are the biggest ones. And then I would say that, uh, again, kind of tagging on to re- it's centered around recycling, right? Because that's where consumers, uh, you know, they want to do the most that they can uh, and not understanding some of the implications of doing it wrong. Uh, residual food and liquid can be problematic, right? We do have to rinse out our recyclables and it's a gentle, quick rinse, right? I'm not saying take a peanut butter jar and sit there and scrub it with soap and water for 30 minutes, right? But, you know, if you've got a pasta sauce jar, right, a little bit of residual sauce in there, squirt some water in there, swirl it around, tap it dry, throw it in the bin. And the reason that we ask you to do that is something we touched on earlier. And uh, the reason we don't don't, uh, explore that mixed waste uh, process is that you lose paper and cardboard along the way. If it gets soiled with food and liquid, we got to throw it away. So you're saying give it – I've always debated – this is helpful because – you know, I kind of do what you do. I give it a quick rinse, but it's not totally scrubbed out. And so no. I, I think that's always the thing people worry about. Am I wasting more water than, you know, is is it more harmful because I'm standing there scrubbing this thing? I just do a quick rinse. I'm not super thorough, but sounds like that's okay. Yeah, a quick rinse is fine. And again, we talk about, you know, making small habit changes. You know, set a couple of the the bottles and jars on the sink. And next time you're getting ready to do some dishes when you already have the water running, throw that through the rotation and then you're good to go. Um, You know, one thing I I will shamelessly plug about Las Vegas is we are considered a town of excess, but we do a really good job. When did that happen? (laughs) Uh, No, I know the lights and the the casinos. Yeah. But when we talk about water here, actually, water is a precious resource. And um our Las Vegas Valley Water District, the Southern Nevada Water Authority, they've all done a really yeah. tremendous job in uh, modeling how wastewater is treated. Anything that I put down the drain yeah. comes right back yeah. out uh, the tap at some point. I've heard about this right? in Vegas, like everything, even the outside watering, the golf course at the wind gets reused. And so, I mean, hallelujah, because you're in the middle of a desert. But I, I've heard about how just how great that uh, Las Vegas uh, reuses all the water. Yeah, it's pretty tremendous. And so there's other places around the country that are like that. But definitely, if you live somewhere, you know, I think I've read recent uh, recent headlines about some of the, the water issues in Arizona, right? Be cognizant of that. And, you know, you don't have to wash your recyclables out so they're, you know, spit shine clean. It's just a, it's a really quick rinse and then throw it in the recycling bin. If you want to go super extreme, you could do what my grandmother did. She lived during the Great Depression. She would rinse everything again and again and reuse it. And that's great. Like if you can get it off and reuse tinfoil, like why not? But I'm talking down to like dirty, like saran wrap. I would go in there. She's like, Oh, I'm going to eat something out of the fridge. And I could see what it was wrapped in. I'd say, okay, this is now we've gone too far. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a bit of a, a stretch pun intended. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, you know, what, maybe one other question I think could be interesting too. And you and I kind of touched on this before manufacturing. This is maybe a question more about government and policy. Um, you know, when we drive down the street, we know what a red, green, and yellow light means. And it's very simple. And you can go any city in the U.S. and you know what that is. But when it comes to disposing of things, 
you need a PhD. And even then, it's very localized. Like what, what I can do potentially here versus what you do versus what my sister does, it's all very different. And manufacturing, you know, you look at the, you know, you look at the recycling, you know, the little arrows in there, like they mean, I don't know, I don't even know anymore. And so um, I think that is a big challenge for almost every consumer. Uh, and you just don't, I'll give you another example at, at OfferUp headquarters. We have compostable um, um, utensils and cups. Nobody even knew. Nobody even knew. It was until like an all hands. I'm like, wait, those are compostable. I didn't know that for years. And so I think that is, in my opinion, one of the biggest opportunities in the U.S. But I don't know how we're going to, going to evolve packaging unless the government steps in and says, no, we're going to simplify the system. And if we can simplify it at the source, the man, like think of the repercussions of that. Uh, but I just, I don't know, like we're such a consumer society. It seems like almost insurmountable to think through that, but it just, it just seems like a big opportunity to me. It is an opportunity. And the good news is that it is starting to happen. And actually I, I figured we'd get on this topic and I brought an example with me. So uh, I don't know if you can see it, but right here, yes, right. Little triangle. Let's say triangle, not the recycling symbol. With plastics in particular, um, that's called the resin identification code. And it is very misleading for consumers, right? They automatically see that and it mirrors the recycling symbol. So they think, well, that goes in the recycling bin, right? And then it goes in there and now that plastic bag is a problem. So recent legislation, uh, it's it's localized to the states. Uh, you're seeing some in California, I believe Oregon, Maine. There's a handful of others. There's some things called truth in labeling. And what they're requiring is that manufacturers of goods, they actually have to truly be recyclable before they can put something on there. And they're talking about doing away with that resin identification code. Oh, yes. That was, yeah, that was created back in, I, I think it was the 60s at some point. It was trying to create some, uh, some level of, uh, you know, uh, uniform understanding of what types of things, you know, are made from certain types of polymers. But all it's done is it's create confusion yeah. for the consumers. So that's that's so, awesome to hear. Yeah. So we, we we probably will see more of that in the near future. The truth and labeling will probably start to gain a foothold. You know, uh, legislation, especially when we're talking about the manufacturing of goods, right? We can we can see it with some of the EV policies. You know, once it gains a foothold in California, the size of their economy really dictates what happens on a large scale. Yeah. So I, th I think that if it happens in California, we'll start to see it trickle out elsewhere. Um, another interesting law to, to look up would be extended producer responsibility. And similar enough, you know, what it's what it's trying to to tackle is that when a manufacturer makes something that they actually need to have processes in place to vet whether or not it can truly be recycled. They're actually responsible for it going back into the the circular yes. economy and, and, and becoming something again. So those are two things to keep an eye out for is truth and labeling and extended producer. I love both those. So, you know, one of the thing I really want to get after it's, you know, I, there's a few other companies that I'm trying to support and it's back to labeling. So when I was a kid, yeah, uh, I don't recall when I was born if there was really nutrition labels. And then they became more of a thing. I think in the 90s, they really took off to what they were. Like nobody talked about calories when I was a kid. And then now it's more of a thing. And, you, you know, you can yeah. read about everyone's always looking at all the labels. I think we should have in all of our labels, what was the impact of that product? And it should be like a carbon, however you want to do it. I think carbon is an easy one to do. Um, and that should be on there. So at least as a consumer, it should just be under the nutrition fraction. 
you know, what was the what was the impact of this product to our planet? So, you know, I'm trying to find creative ways to help support, you know, there's a number of companies trying to do this. And, you know, I've been researching the nutrition facts, the credit score. Like, how did you start with these things? And then how did they become mainstream? It takes a while. It takes years to figure this out. But I think that's one important thing. And then the second thing you said, which I think is spot on, is manufacturers need to have some level of accountability for what they're producing. And you can't just say, I'm just going to produce the most toxic thing and make tons of profits. Like, no, like Coca-Cola, if you're producing 100 million, I'm just making this up, 100 million plastic water bottles. You should be able to, you should be accountable to some degree, like what happens with those. And hopefully, if this trend continues, then companies like that start to say, Oh, okay, now I'm going to put a little bit more time and effort into building more sustainable packaging. I just don't want to deal with that anymore. So that's my hope with that. I think that goes for any businesses. They should be one, consumers should know what was the impact of that product is. And then two, manufacturers need to have some level of accountability, which is, I think today they just don't, they manufacture it and then companies like yours has to figure out what what to do with all of it. Yeah. And I, and I think that you're, you're on the track, you know, uh, and I think companies like Coke, they will start to, you know, again, when we're talking about polymer center, right. And, and feeding that, that void, I think that it it will come. I think uh, maybe not at the necessarily the, the micro level where they're talking about carbon impact of, you know, the production of the material, but definitely more of that extended producer responsibility or using more recycled content in their packaging. And I think I think more and more of these brand owners are, are kind of tracking that way. So it'll be interesting to see how things shake out in the very near future. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, this is really insightful. I really love how we kind of talk through so many different aspects of uh, just our waste system. And it's, it is a huge, huge challenge that I think everyone can uh, relate to. So I really appreciate you for being here. Yeah, uh, happy to be here. Anytime you want to talk trash, I'm your guy. Yeah, talk trash. There we go. Maybe that's the title of the podcast when we put it out there. Yeah, talking trash. Yeah, talking trash. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks again. Hey, thanks, Nick.